very happy and pleased to have my friend and colleague, uh, Professor Dlaver Aldin, uh, here with me today. We have been working together now for a couple of years, and I mean, I really appreciate the conversations that we have had uh, in many places, from uh, from Brussels to Erbil to uh, Beirut, uh, Rome, and uh, other places. So. Um, I look forward uh, today to continue that conversation about the world events and about uh, what is going on in this strange place that we call the Middle East. And just to kick uh, off of our uh, conversations, to me, I mean, there are few places in the world where the need is larger for new trust-based compromises, grand bargains, and social contracts. The question is how these can manifest themselves on the backbone of the combination of the failed Arab Spring transitions and the Daesh revolution that, even if it has failed in its current form in Iraq and Syria, still has managed to, to shake the Sykes-Picot arrangement to such an extent that, in my point of view, it's naive to imagine that the Middle East region will calmly fall into its familiar place in a post-Dash phase. So this is one of the things that I think we should talk about. Because what is needed is a new regional concert supported or at the very least accepted by external stakeholders, including powers as the US and Russia. But is it equally naive to think that this will happen? as it necessitates a level of trust between both external and internal stakeholders that simply do not seem to exist at the moment. The question is, will it even materialize in the short to medium term horizon? And if not, what kind of Middle East does this leave us with? Is the current disorder that we're currently seeing in the Middle East just the new order? I think that is one of the questions that we need to start confronting much more seriously. For the time being, we have sort of been thinking that this is just a passing phase. This is something that will soon disappear and then we will be back to normality. But maybe this is the new normality, at least for the time being. Then we need to take it much more seriously and we need to talk about that. This, I think, I think should form one part of our conversation but there is an also an other angle to that, and that is sort of the more bottom-up reaction to all of this. Because in my point of view, equally worrying is the fact that the Middle East is a very youthful region. That is something that it has in similarity with uh, parts of Africa and Asia and Latin America, of course. But the Middle East is a very youthful region. And from Algeria in the west to Iraq in the east, in poor and dissolute rural settings, in urban decay and in camps for the refugees and the displaced, there are millions of youth living in despair, feeling motionless, feeling that all uh, aspirations toward social progress is blocked, feeling directionless, but also, for good reasons, angry. Why should they trust their governments and external stakeholders with an endless array of plans for peace, reconciliation and development that at least so far has not delivered. For the time being, I think it's fair to say that Dash may have captured the imagination of some of these people, replacing directionless with a violent dead certainty. 
dash in the, uh, is not necessarily able to do that in its current format. But the question is what will come? What will come next? Because, because something will come if not some solutions to the current predicament is found. So, my friend Dlaver, we have a tall order to deal with here. Let's try to start our conversation on the regional level, in this space of distrust and disorder, and from there try to make our way down to uh, your place of home, which is the streets of Erbil in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. But first, let me sort of, given the kind of picture, and I mean, this is things that we have been uh, debating before. I mean, uh, at the last time when we met in uh, in Beirut in the beginning of uh, December. But w what is your views on this? If you, if you start by sort of the regional level, the the level of of uh, distrust that exists between these between the various parties, what kind of prospects do you see for some sort of a regional concert here? Is it possible? But also, is it really needed? Or what other sort of alternative scenarios towards other futures do you think exist on the, on the regional level? Thank you very much. Um, uh, I want to begin by thanking everybody for being here at such an early hour in the morning. Uh, and a pleasure to meet such a fine group of people. Uh, and I want to thank you, uh, Morton, for creating this opportunity and inviting me along. Uh, it's a privilege. Uh, it is a, a big topic, uh, it is a complex topic, and uh, one thing we shouldn't do, uh, and that is what usually superpowers like Americans do, is to look at a very complex uh, scenario and try to come up with very simple policies, simple answers, and then get it wrong every time. Um, one thing for sure is that definitely our neck of the wood, Middle East, is far more complex, uh, difficult, sophisticated um, than it looks from a, a distance. Uh, to the degree that we have our own evolution pa pathway, we've been through something that is unique to us. And <clears throat> there was a time when we were subject, like everyone else, to a global order, a bipolar global order, where you could predict problems predict what might happen in the future, but it's no longer the case because our neck of the wood, the Middle East, has evolved in its own way now. It's no longer subject to the superpowers, uh, policies and strategies. It has developed its own regional powers. They evolved over the last 25 years and they are drivers and shapers of events and they're independent of the global powers uh, especially the only superpower that we know. But what also has happened since the collapse of the Soviet Union, we now have our own local actors, and the local actors are state actors, that's the traditional countries, sub-state actors like Kurdistan Regional Government, which is constitutionally recognized, it's a formal government, but it's not a sovereign state, it's a sub-state. And there are non-state actors, some that are legitimate, um, or legitimized, legalized, like military groups that are now fighting ISIS, there is the paramilitary units and all that. And there are some illegitimate by our standards, and that's terrorists. Every one of them is globally linked, and every one of them engages in alliances, whether these are proxy relations or independent 
relations or mutually beneficial ones. So this is what we are facing. And when you're talking about trust, this is where we have to define what it means to us than to you. To you, um, you've just defined it. But to us, trust is a, is a multidimensional, vertical and horizontal issue that we have to look at trust, um, trusting the global powers, the regional powers that shape our lives, our politics, our security, our economy, then our local actors who are actually ruling us, our own rulers, and then trust in our institutions. Because fundamentally, for individual citizens, what matters to them most? First is good life, which comes with good economy, good management of economy, good management of resources, which is actually in a complete mess. And then rule of law, social justice, good governance, they don't exist. There are promises, there are populism, there is all sorts of rhetoric that try to distract you from the real issues. So some rulers in the name of nationalism, they say forget about the economy now, forget about rule of law, it'll come, let's deal with the identity, let's deal with the nationalism. Some in the name of religion, sectarianism, and so on. So individuals in the Middle East never trusted the system, never developed that trust that you have in your system. Now the question is, in Norway, in Europe, should people stay in Europe or not? Is Brexit important or not? Or should we choose this um, politician who might manage the economy better or the other? For us, it's, it's far more complex. It's trust in the entire system of governance that is at stake. And if you look at the trend and the evolution from the day we were born, and that's 100 years ago, i.e. states of the Middle East, like Spico, you mentioned, came to existence 100 years ago. Since then, our evolution has been going from having ups and downs, good and bad, but there was an order which was completely dismantled recently. What did what, what it replaced with? Vacuums in many places, failed states, weak states, failed states. Is it stabilized? The answer is not yet. Is it going to stabilize? It may do, and it's quite likely to, but not in the way that you would recognize it, not in the way that it used to be, not in the way that it happens elsewhere in the globe. Thanks, David. I mean, I want to pick up on one thing yeah, that you said. I mean, when we, when we look at, I mean, you mentioned the complexity, and I mean, uh, nobody can disagree with you about the, the complexity of current affairs in the, in the Middle East. But, I mean, uh, at, at a face value, I mean, uh, the whole Middle East may look like some sort of a spaghetti bowl of um, ad hoc made alliances now, for example, around... Uh, Syria in Iraq, we saw some of the same things in the crisis on Hariri in, uh, in Lebanon and so forth and so on, I could go on. But in this seemingly confused maze of spaghetti-like alliances, is it something that starts materializing here that at least could build some level of trust and predictability among some of these actors, not necessarily that it will be possible to unify all of them, but that some actors, so what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here, do you see sort of some sort of more 
stable alliances or is all of this built completely on shaky grounds whereas uh, for example these kind of alliance that the Saudis try to try to keep together is there, is there any kind of solidity in it or is it just sort of built on completely shaky grounds it's it's a tough one um but if you look at the detail the way we live it we we suffer from it um if you break it down to its element there are foundations there are some potential for resilience for producing structure and restructuring but who's going to do that at the local level in places like kurdistan where we never had state institutions so the word state building institutionalization means a lot because people need it desperately and the fact that we didn't have solid institutions we we're, we're suffering from it we're paying for it because this latest referendum in Kurdistan and the challenge we faced where everybody was against the Kurds because the Kurds provoked that because the Kurds united all the enemies we could not stand that uh challenge or attack everything collapsed it showed that we had structural weaknesses in the Kurdish government for 25 years we failed to build the institutions that withstand such threats or uh challenges but actually look at Baghdad Baghdad has always been a state and has always been like many of the neighborhood state the, the Middle East always has state structures but they didn't have state building that Baghdad and Iraq and Syria and Jordan and the rest are not institutionalized enough rule of law is still not the the absolute focus institutions of democracy are new and they are not empowered they are tools the parliaments whether it's in Kurdistan or in Baghdad or in in the Middle East parliament is actually a power tool not a power house so locally there are elements that could evolve into some kind of reliable elements of structure to build on but who's going to build it and who's going to undermine it those actors that i mentioned the local actors the regional actors and the global actors every one of them is undermining that move towards building state building nation building uh citizenship and rule of law all of that has been undermined in iraq we have an overwhelming power next door iran which is stretching itself from purely security point of view across the board trying to protect its own national security and it is it has been at it for some time we have turkey a regional power trying to uh, in many ways neutralize that and have its own influence spreading but it every time uh, develops a policy it gets it wrong so it's in the back track and then the other gulf powers that have been trying to get into the rivalry to simply achieve their own objectives and that is again from a security point of view engaged in in spreading their influence by that every one of them is undermining stability if you remember when the soviet collapsed in your area many of the eastern european countries ruled by centralized governments dictatorships they collapsed but they could have been like middle east like the arab spring but what happened there was the eu there was the democracies around you they did not allow that vacuum to happen so they held it together stabilized them integrated them into the european democracy we in the middle east when the arab spring arrived 
when everything collapsed? Who was there to hold us together, to stabilize? No one. None of the regional powers were interested in the stability, in the democracy, in rule of law, in good governance. Instead, they tried to shape the region by their own. And what did the global powers do? At times, they were engaging, like under the Bush administration for eight years. They came in, they occupied Iraq, they became shapers, movers, and they spent money t uh, and, and resources. But then suddenly, under Obama administration, they pulled out. They disengaged. They left alone. They thought that this is too much, too much of a mess. That means we lacked something that would reshape that order, and that is leadership. We do not have leadership. Who is providing leadership? The people who are providing leadership are actually doing it with no consideration to state building, nation building, stabilization, good market, good trade, good economy. No, they're doing it from pure security point of view. So what we had in the past, since the first war or the second war, up until the collapse of the Soviet Union, was the global order, but actually had reached an equilibrium, a balance, where it allowed for trade to, to be the language of the day, allowed for free flow, allowed for some kind of predictability for the future. Now, in the Middle East, with our own evolution, we now have a, a dynamic that is a complete mess with no leadership. No one providing a sense of direction to say how to stabilize, how to actually make the Middle East contribute to global prosperity, global well-being by its own resources. Instead, what happened to the Middle East? We're exporting refugees to our next door neighbor, which is Europe. We're exporting radicalism and terrorism again to our next door neighbor. It's not the other way. You're not exporting refugees and terrorists to Middle East. It's the other way. And then what else are we doing? We're losing the business opportunities, where, whether it was actually energy, whether it's trade, construction, all that is now disrupted to a degree that is unrecognizable. So this is where we need leadership. Leadership at the local level, who is going to provide it in the lack of, in the absence of state institutions? Local actors are uh, engaged in a rivalry that is not doing that. So now we have to think back. Your question was, do we have the elements of restructuring, of one day reaching a balance? The answer is yes. But it takes a lot of effort to then put everything in place and start the state building process and institutionalization. But it cannot happen by the act of the local actors alone. We need a global and regional support and leadership to achieve that. Thanks, Laver. I wanted to touch upon um, a couple of things that we have, uh, <laughs> that we have talked about uh, in, in our previous meetings. And to me, I mean, if the grand bargains and the grand compromises are not possible for the time being, the question is then, what, what are we left with? And do you remember, I mean, um, in the beginning of December, we were sitting at a nice restaurant in uh, Tripoli in uh, northern uh, Lebanon, talking about um, a way of depicting Lebanese politics as roundabout politics. Uh, by that, I mean that... Um, 
it's the politics that is not necessarily going anywhere, but it's a politics that also means that the main actors have more or less decided to stay in the same roundabout, and they have um, uh, they have made certain r common rules concerning engagement in this roundabout. Uh, this is not necessarily taking a country forward, but it's also sort of it's avoiding. It's a way of avoiding major bloodshed because the rules of engagement in this roundabout is more or less accepted by all parties. So nobody's going crash co collision course against each other anymore. They're going around turn after turn after turn. Every now and then there is bumper to bumper and there is a few casualties. There is no major outbreak of war either. In a situation where, where, the, kind, where the kind of leadership that you are asking for, Dlaver, uh, may be lacking, is this, um, is this a possible model, for example, for reconstruction and reconstruction without deep reconciliation in the case, for example, of Iraq and Syria? Because maybe at the time being, I mean, that deep reconciliation that so many of these liberal models of reconciliation ask for, maybe that is not possible. Maybe that is, is impossible in the current situation. Is there, is there other rules of engagement like this roundabout politics that may or may not work? I would very much like to us to continue that conversation that we had around that restaurant table in uh, Tripoli. Well, first of all, I'm amazed by your memory because um, <laughs> uh, I don't believe that what uh, the Lebanese guys were describing is a sustainable roundabout for the long term. It's actually a phenomenon. It's a symptom of a real disease. The real disease is that more and more of these small countries are losing their sovereignty, losing their ability to make their decisions. But it's not happening in a dramatic way. Events happen, wars happen, but the change in the system is slow but definite and is palpable. In my generation, I have seen so much and imagine it, take, it may take a decade for you to feel the milestones, the, the difference. But Lebanon is, is not different from Iraq, from Syria. It's gradually losing its uh, ability to make its own decisions. Its state structures are less and less, um, uh, again, uh, able to um, develop their own vision, strategies, plans, and roadmaps for recovery. And regional powers are very, very powerful. It used to be, people used to go to Washington and Moscow to decide what happens in Baghdad, in Egypt, or in, in elsewhere, but they don't anymore. We have Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia in the vicinity, plus all the other non-state actors who are cross-border, because borders don't mean anything. This Psycho-Speco issue is, is, is out of the window anyway. It's only in the mind of the policymakers in Washington and, and, and Moscow where they stick to that. But actually, if you look at each border, uh, they are not respected by even the local actors, be by even the, their own governments, let alone by powers. Who is not invading or evading or, or crossing these borders willy-nilly? Uh, these countries are suffering from the same phenomenon. Uh, I want to be more explicit than that. Since the Iranian emergence as a, as a real regional power, they have made a decision that they will not go back to the days where they were vulnerable to wars, to pressure, to isolation. 
and they considered Iraq as far more strategic or the most strategic place for them and the launch pad for them to go further and they have grasped Iraq bottom up and top down from every corner Iraq has lost its ability to make its own decisions and it's still deteriorating it's not like a roundabout like uh, Beirut uh, we are not going in roundabout we're going downhill every time and every time we have an optimism about oh it'll be okay tomorrow suddenly there's ISIS no it'll be alright after we win against ISIS but then there's worse Somebody will say, oh, no, no, it'll be fine if Mr. Abad is re-elected, then Iraq will be gradually peeled away from Iran. And guess what? In the election list uh, alliances, now he's aligning himself with a very army that is a threat to the state structure, and that is the paramilitary units that are essentially there instead of the army, instead of the state institutions. Yet the leader of the country is now aligning himself with the very paramilitary groups, or people call it militias, who are a threat to the state uh, uh, well-being. Now, Syria, we know what happened in Syria and how it failed. And, and Lebanon, again, it has lost its ability to steer its own self out of this mess. And the roundabout is not like an equal distance dimension. It's actually a, a spiral downwards until you see something happen. And if you go beyond, you see North Africa, Middle East are all at the moment worried, concerned, anxious about what might happen next. Because places like Egypt, you and I remember when Egypt used to lead the Arab countries in its ability to come up with new ideas of nationalism and ultra-nationalism or bad nationalism, I call it. Uh, but they were significant in terms of population, in terms of Arab nationalism, in terms of challenging the superpowers and leading the non-alliance uh, forces, now Egypt is insignificant. Egypt has lost its ability to make its own decisions too. So coming back to this uh, discussion about, uh, yes, people getting used to living in that roundabout. No, no, no. It's just like getting used to needles, <laughs> doctors. Can you ever get used to, to that? It's, it's, a, it's a prospect that is frightening that is a nightmare that is actually making us suffer. And I want to bring you back to um, Iraq and Kurdistan. It was only 2003 that Saddam was removed. We adopted a new constitution. It was a framework for constitutional democracy. Everybody was excited about it. Everybody said, that's it. We found a recipe where we can have a roadmap for the future. And then suddenly we found the very constitution itself it created a new formula for sectarianism, for divisiveness, for sectarian majority rule. And then it, all it needed is one prime minister to come and rule in the name of sectarianism and alienate sections of the society. Not only Sunnis that felt alienated and fell into ISIS. The Kurds were uh, alienated and then went their own direction wanting um, uh, independence. But also the level of corruption alienated the Shias against the Shias. What happened in Iraq? And I would say in Lebanon is the same. People understand it as Sunni Shia Arab. But actually look at the house of Shia. Fragmented beyond recognition. They can't, no two Shia parties can actually sit together and have a common vision. The Kurds fragmented beyond repair. 
No two Kurdish parties can actually sit and say, what should we do next? Sunnis are all over the place. They lost their constituency. They lost their leadership. They lost. Now, what happened to Yazidis? They are polarized. They are divided. They are fragmented. And they are militarized, just like the Kurds and the Shias and the Sunnis. What happened to the Christians? We used to have 1.4 million Christians in Iraq. One million left. The others are polarized, divided, militarized. And then the smaller and smaller. So as you can see, this divisiveness, this polarization, this fragmentation goes along with militarization, alliances with global powers, alliances with regional powers, and with the local actors. And then where is this going? It doesn't make sense if you think that this will stabilize and that's a normality. No, that is not a normality we need. We need to go back one step and say, let's do something about state building. Let's do something about constitution, amending it, implementing it. The trust element coming back to the very theme of what you described. People in Iraq lost trust in every politician for their ability to uphold the constitution, to implement the constitution, to reconcile between the communities, to reconstruct after this destruction, all these wars, to actually regain some normality that can eventually lead to good governance and rule of law. That is lost. How to regain that? It's not up to the local actors alone or regional actors alone. And guess what? No global power would want to go to that mess and say, I'm going to sort you out. So, Well, this takes us, takes a con con conversation into the, uh, the very complicated issue of, uh, of citizenship. And I believe that, I mean, as part of this crisis of trust, we are also faced with a crisis of citizenship. And I mean, the kind of fragmentation that you just described, which I very much agree on, I mean, the, 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 this, this is what is happening, this, this process of fragmentation. But if this is the case, how can we then start reimagining, or is it even possible to start reimagining some sort of, for example, Iraqi citizenship? Is it at this point in time even meaningful to talk about a national citizenship in Iraq? Or do we or do we have to quickly and seriously start thinking about alternative modalities of citizenship? Com a, com a combined citizenship which is based both on sort of the local idea of autochtony and sons of the soil that can work in combination with some sort of national and perhaps even regional citizenship. Because that may be a long-term orientation towards a, a future, an alternative future. Some sort of regional citizenship that is combined with a local citizenship. I guess I mean that the very basic question I'm trying to ask here is, is is the whole idea of Iraq even viable in the, in, in the long-term future? Or do we have to think about a serious reconfiguration here? Okay, um, well, despite of what we said, the answer to the first part of your question, and that is citizenship, is it possible? I think the answer is yes. But don't expect miracles overnight. It needs a lot of work. And the the, the fundamental focus 
is, is is on rule of law. If we all work towards having, forget about democracy for the moment, because this is an evolution that will happen with time, with efforts, with investment. But rule of law can be quicker, can can happen by collective efforts. So rule of law is capable because I know the people I live with, and I know people there, the the exponentially growing population there, they all look forward to having good life and they are prepared to sacrifice as well as invest. And the the thing that has been lacking, that's been that is producing all this um, um, uh, phenomenon of, of wars, of conflicts, of, uh, of failures, has been this lack of rule of law. So rule of law can do that. Rule of law doesn't mean you keep the maps as they are. You have to do it within an Iraq because they, they don't exist as as boundaries other than on paper anyway because l local actors, state actors, non-state actors all are crossing these borders influencing each other's evolution anyway. But let's think of it as a, in a different way. I'm not talking about a common market uh, overnight but there are many things that these people have in common. Identity religion, economy, resources, trade, connectivity, neighborhood. You can between, you can look for so many denominators, so many things that unify them and start investing in them. And if you're again going back to some sense of optimism about the long-term future, the way that the regional powers are behaving up until now made this transitional phase of Arab Spring, you might call, or transition between the old order and the next one. We're in the middle of it. We're not like the end of one, or to get so pessimistic, thinking that this is hell, it's not never going to get better. No, accept the evolution, accept the track, and accept that we're in the middle of that turmoil. And it's a, we're in transition. But why am I optimistic that this transition will end? First of all, Iran itself has reached its limits, overstretched itself from the security point of view, its capability of satisfying its own citizens while expanding its influence across the region has reached that limit. And how far can it go? One day it becomes so vulnerable it needs to rethink. And the Turkish as well as Saudi um, policymakers have realized that everything they did was failed in the region. They engaged for 10 years in very good alliances and strategic partnerships, for example, Turkey and the KRG. They had an excellent partnership on economy, on politics. Suddenly, Turkey decided to desecuritize its relations with KRG, more engage in energy, more engage in good neighborly, and it worked for them. Suddenly, they had internal problems started overspilling it over into Syria, over into Iraq, but now they know that this is not working, this is not sustainable for the future. So they may actually gradually think back, say, ah, we need to converge with Iran on something, diverge on other things, cooperate in some areas while we keep our differences. And that is already happening. They do the same with Russia. Saudi Arabia now, in the new climax of populism and Trumpism, they are encouraged by what they hear and what they see, but they have internal problems. Soon they realize that whatever they did in the past, by throwing money at their allies to fight their, uh, their foes, didn't work. They are, not, they are not able 
They don't have the institutions that follow their empire building, their influences. They do help people in Syria, but they don't have the way of controlling that or, or, or accounting for that or monitoring that. So the regional powers are reaching their limits, but they are still going full speed as, as uh, in the past. Very soon, whether that is a decade, less than a decade, two decades, doesn't matter, they will reach an equilibrium. And the global powers are still not talking to each other properly. One day they will, because the Middle East is far too important for them to ignore in, for ev all the reasons that I mentioned earlier. So stability top-down from global regional powers will come. And then bottom-up, there's a turmoil. People are losing not only trust, but patience. They are demonstrating, they are rejecting, they are refusing. And because there is this election cycle, every time it reminds people how bad things are. I'm optimistic, and it's not artificially so. I do see that everyone reached their limit, reached their, uh, 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 the, the overstretching their, their own uh, imagination uh, for knowing how far they can go. And one day the global powers, especially EU, I hope, would then come back and say, enough is enough. I come back to one final uh, uh, punchline here uh, about this issue, and that is the role of EU and even non-EU members like Norway. <laughs> okay. There are plenty that you can do. You see how much this turmoil in the Middle East is affecting you. Refugees, radicalism, trade, all of that is affecting everybody. But what are we doing? Europeans, your EU has not been capable of having a more uh, assertive, aggressive, or more proactive foreign policy. But elements within it are Germany, France, Britain, for the, for the time being Britain, and and few others have been, Norway has been very proactive. But what do they do? They watch events. They know what is right. But guess what they do? They say, here is what the Americans should do. Well, the Americans are not doing it. E and who is affected by it? It's Europe. Europe pays the price. Europeans need to be more proactive. And how to do it? Instead of throwing money and help and military aid to people to fight ISIS, no, make that help conditional on the local actors say, you need to stabilize. When you help the Kurds, when you help Peshmerga, when you help Iraqis, say this help has to be conditional on you institutionalizing stabilizing, empowering your parliament, and, and, and uh, uh, st stabilizing your own uh, uh, inner house, uh, putting the house in order so that your citizens are happy, don't resort to radicalism, immigration, and focus on their own well-being. Believe me, if this conditionality, this kind of constructive engagement didn't work in the past or doesn't work with dictators, it works with Iraqis and the Kurds. Kurdish leaders welcome that because they use it to convince their own fellows to say, look, don't interfere with this policy because this is conditional, this money comes conditional. And we have tried it, we have lobbied for it, and it worked. So when Norway, when EU go to the Middle East, don't treat them like in the past, like in the Cold War, when you say, here is my bit, and you're free to do what, what you want with your people. Well, one day that will come back to you with, radicalism, with lack of trust, with lack of good relations and so on. Yes, you can do, you can make a difference, 
by engaging more constructively. And remember, Norway, Europeans are trusted by Middle Eastern people. May not be politicians, but people. Because the history, the track record is such that you've always come with the right reason. Your values, your adherence to the values of liberty, democracy, rule of law, excellent examples to imitate. And you come for trade, you come for help, you come for humanitarian aid. How much more do, you, do they need to know that you, you're a good friend and they should trust your motives? What is the alternative to you? Conditional help from Iran. Does it come with stability, rule of law, democracy? No. When you come with the right intentions and then offer the right help with the right expectation for them to put their house in order, they will accept it. And trust me, there are good examples I can give you. I'm not going to go into detail, but I have specific examples to say how it worked and it paid uh, uh, and achieved milestones in that progress. So this is a, a practical note uh, for, for the audience here. Thanks, Lavet. Um One final sort of bit that I would like to visit uh, as we sort of make our way down from the, uh, the regional level down to um, the, the youthful uh, streets of, for example, Erbil. I don't disagree with you when you say that uh, we are in, uh, in an evolution. I believe you are, and I mean, nothing will stay permanent. That's, that's for certain. I mean, something will, ch will, will change. Uh, I'm not necessarily certain how it will change, what the outcome of this evolution will be, but that uh, the Middle East will sort of stay frozen as it is, for, uh, as it is today for the foreseeable future. No, I, uh, of course I don't uh, think that is the case. And it may be that, I mean, the kind of sort of more positive evolution that uh, you are talking about, that it may come. Let's hope it come. Uh, what worries me a little bit is, of course, the, um, and you also alluded to this, that you say it may take a decade. It may take a decade. But the worrying thing is, uh, is okay, of course, that you have a lot of people who are extremely impatient. And they are impatient for, uh, for good reasons. They are impatient because they are much better informed than previously. I mean, even people who live somewhere in the... Uh, uh, quite physically isolated plains of uh, Syria and Iraq. I mean, they are quite well informed about the very the sheer fact that there are other life trajectories out there that is much better than the one that they are connected to at the, at the, at the moment, and they want that con connectivity, um, which means that there is an immense impatience there. You touched a little bit on the case of uh, your place of home, which is Erbil, and. I must admit that I'm a little worried about what is happening now in, uh, in Erbil. It may be that what happened with the, refer with the referendum and what came after is a shock that was needed. Because things were not well in the house of KRG. There, there were problems also before the referendum. And I would also perhaps say that one of the reasons why uh, you went into this referendum, which after all, ended in a complete disaster in many ways. It was also due to some of these internal issues. Uh, I mean, um, there was an election that was supposed to follow after it, and at least the referendum would, uh, would probably have served one of the uh, uh, parties quite well. 
if that election has ever taken place. But it must have been an enormous fall of confidence from and an enormous fall of confidence not only in sort of the traditional parties of leadership in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, that, that is the KDP and the PUK, but also in the most, perhaps at least in the global imagination, the most prestigious Kurdish institution, and that is the Peshmerga. What happened after the referendum, both in Erbil, but also particularly with the Peshmerga at Kirkuk, it must have led to a lot of both bewilderment and confusion, but I would also suspect a lot of youthful anger towards almost every bits and parts of the ruling system in Iraqi Kurdistan. So, so where does that leave us now on the streets of Erbil? What, is the, what kind of alternative futures may come out of this? And what may this tell us about also the Middle East at large? Very good uh, questions. Uh, I'm glad um, we reached this level. Um, first of all, um, I will bring it back to the element of trust. Um, this evolution left alone to nature, it will be a bad one. You really need to design that. That's why we need engagement from every party at every level. We should not let this evolve on its own, otherwise we'll see dinosaurs, okay? We should help design the evolution in a way that will lead to stability, to mutual benefit, to global uh, prosperity. And the, the moment that those isolated people you mentioned, the, the moment the ordinary people who are very much in touch with the social media via Twitter, via Facebook, via everything, they know what's going on. People are far more educated and they vote with that in mind. They do not expect miracles even though they lose their patience. But what they expect is that that trust once they see that you really have a vision, a plan, a strategy, and they do see that you implement it in milestones, and they see progress, they trust you, they, they are patient. People in Iraq, people in Kurdistan have been very patient with a very disappointing elite of politicians. You cannot find any more disappointing elite than Iraqi political elite. Imagine that patience. And they still, people go to the elections, they still vote, and it's for, still for the same people. Now, what we lack here, that vision, that communicating that, and say, look, we are going to evolve our state-building process, our nation-building process, in this manner. And Kurdistan region can be actually an excellent example for many parts of that region to learn from its successes and its failures. Kurdistan, you remember 25 years ago, our leaders were in the mountains. What were they doing? They were professional destroyers of state structures because the enemy was Saddam. Saddam was supported by the global powers and their job was to suppress nations and take the oil and use it for wars. Then suddenly we had the opportunity to build our own nation, build our own institutions, and then suddenly 
people forgot the, that these are the people of yesterday, but now expect, expected them to establish democracy, strengthen the rule of law, institutionalize, and so on, and forget about the dynamics of rivalry between them. This is in one generation, half a generation. So it's a, it was a blink of an eye. But nevertheless, the progress was so fast, the expectations were so high, the aspirations were so great. We went from having nothing to having three governorates with a, almost four million under the self-rule, without being sovereign, without having a, your own economy, your own international relation. And then Saddam fell. Then there was an opportunity where the Kurds gained so much influence. In Baghdad, the Kurds became kingmakers. No one could rule Baghdad without the Kurds cooperating. The constitution was built by the alliance between the Shias and the Kurds. Both benefited from, that, from this alliance. And then what happened? Time after time, the Kurds got more sovereignty within a sovereign Iraq. Developed their own economy, their own control of their own army, having their own international diploma, diplomatic relations, making their own decisions. And Baghdad tolerated it, accepted it, knew about it, could do nothing about it. And then came ISIS. After ISIS, the collapse of the Iraqi army, gave the opportunity to Peshmerga and to the Kurdish authorities to actually regain all the Kurdish majority areas that were denied to them, A, Arabized under Saddam, B, were not given to them in the new Iraq, where Article 140 of the Constitution was never implemented. So they gained it by themselves. Suddenly, everyone accepted this new reality. Iran was happy to see that. But they said, that's as far as you can go. You can't have your flag in the United Nations. You can have as much sovereignty within Iraq, but don't touch Iraq. Turkey was the same. Turkey was benefiting from this new situation, getting more of the oil, selling it for them. Baghdad didn't agree. Ankara still sold the oil and gave the money back to the Kurds. It was all working with the very foes that yesterday were looking at us from a very security point of view. This, if we had accepted evolution, this was a fantastic milestone. We went from having one milestone after that. We were independent without being called independent. We were sovereign without being called sovereign. We should have been patient. We should have waited for another opportunity. And another opportunity was going to come. The United States policy was within weeks get rid of ISIS by September, October. Within months get Abadi elected so that he might help the Iraqi nationalists to peel Iraq away. It's a disillusion. It's a dream. It will never happen. But let them feel that. Let them think that. That was their policy. And the third one, collectively with Saudi, Israeli, and possibly the Turks and America, were hoping that they would gradually make it difficult for Iran to carry on to do what it did. So the big sharks had an agenda. We, as small fish, could have waited for new opportunities, but didn't. We went for something big. But then the failure of that taught us a lot of things. First of all, it's the first time that America, Iran, Turkey, everyone, friends, foes, Europe, all united against a small fish because the small fish chose the wrong decision, made the wrong judgment, the wrong time to do 
the right thing. Self-determination is the right. Freedom, sovereignty is your right. But choosing the right moment, not doing it while this turmoil is not settled, while the big sharks had a different agenda. So we did not liaise with them, we surprised them. And that's where it brings me back to say non-state actors are as independent as the state actors in their own decision while they're engaged in alliances with the, with the regional powers and global powers. So not calculating well, i.e. miscalculating the international support that came with ISIS, because when ISIS appeared, we had so much international support to our Peshmerga, to our forces, despite the fact that we at home were not doing enough to institutionalize. We had paralyzed our own parliament. We had weakened our own government. Rule of law was weak. Uh, 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 corruption was just as thriving as the rest of Iraq. We have been behaving just as badly as the Iraqi politicians were, yet the international support implied that this is going to be a good time. So when we went for it, we were shocked. In October, 16th of October, Iraqi army, obviously Iraqi army, what is left of it, plus all the paramilitary units, most of, one, most of which are directed by Iran, trained by Iran, led by Iran, and then with American compliance, i.e. tolerance or turning a blind eye, the Turks agreeing, with everyone agreeing, suddenly Kirkuk was lost. Then the rest of the Kurdish majority recently liberated areas. Suddenly all that big, almost independent state was cut in half. Not only that, Baghdad wanted to not take you back to pre-2014, but take you back to pre-2003 and deny you even the things that constitution allowed it. So suddenly we realized there are structural problems even deep inside. We have two zones one under the PUK, one under the KDP. One of them has lost its centralization, lost its focus on uh, ability to rule. The other one is over-centralized, not listening to advice. What happened between the two? Suddenly we realized that we've not institutionalized the Peshmerga enough to make it all under one command and control and withstand pressure and withstand threats. We've not done enough to satisfy our own citizens by rule of law, by good governance, by strengthening our institutions of democracy. So while not doing our homework at home, but we also read the international community's support uh, and, and, and uh, uh, in, in many ways overestimated it. So the consequence of that was that suddenly we lost more than we had gained painfully over years. We lost it all in a couple of days. Now, back to the local actors elsewhere in the Middle East. So much to learn. Patience, evolution, try to influence, try to use your friends to, to design that, that, that evolution well. But more importantly, rule of law, state building, nation building, citizenship, social justice, control of corruption, and then get engaged with the with partners in the world. I believe that we have not lost everything. We've only lost what we gained recently without us underpinning it by institutionalization. We've only gone back five years. We've not gone back 50 years. Baghdad is still changing and it's still weak. 
the regional dynamics not settled, opportunities are coming. The Kurds can regain what they had, but this time they have to think about legitimacy, think about rule of law, think about understanding the dynamics of the big sharks in the region, and waiting for the right opportunity and seize it in the right way. Opportunities and gaining greater sovereignty can happen in Baghdad. We have to engage Baghdad more. And I want to mention that as a last point in saying that we as Kurds didn't do enough to go to Baghdad to share the ownership of the decision-making process, to share the ownership of the political system. While Baghdad failed to embrace us, they alienated us. They cut the budget from us. Under eight years of sectarian majority rule of Maliki, they tried the populism route to gain the Arab vote at the expense of the Kurds. They became anti-Kurds so they get the Arab vote. And then they became anti-Sunni to get the Shia vote. And it worked. They achieved, Maliki achieved the majority that he could form a government with. When Mr. Abadi came, now it's his fourth year, he did nothing to reverse that. He continued the same policy. So Iraq is still broken and is still on the same path as it used to be 10 years ago. So when Baghdad failed to embrace the Sunnis, the Kurds, the other communities, what did we do as Sunnis and Kurds? We didn't go back to Baghdad and embarrass them into that and try to get our own share back. No, we said, well, that's an opportunity. Let's go independent economically. Let's go independent politically. Let's do what it takes to go our own way. No, actually, within Baghdad, in the first phase, we can get more sovereignty than we ever had. But one day, Iraq, Syria, all of that may not mean much, but not in our hand. We should not be the one triggering that change. We, we cannot dismantle countries ourselves from bottom up. It can only happen everywhere, top down, bottom up, horizontal, transverse in every way. So patience and try to influence evolution in the right way. And remember one final thing. Every one of us, whether we are individuals, communities, local actors, state actors, all of us can drive the evolution, can do what it takes to influence events, but each one realistically within its own sphere of influence. Thank you, Dlaver. I think we are going to close this now. Uh, I would like to thank the audience. I would like to thank you for coming.